so we'll get started now uh, good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you might be and welcome to the much delayed and now virtual presentation of natural gas world's canadian gas dialogues pandemic edition my name is dale lunin and i'm the america's editor for natural gas world i'll be hosting the upcoming series of webinars which will present in nearly its entirety, the agenda originally conceived for Canadian Gas Dialogues. Back in November and December of 2019, when we began putting together the program for this event, we, along with pretty much the rest of the world, had no idea at all what 2020 had in store. As news of the coronavirus began emerging in January and February, Many of us thought it would be a minor epi epidemic, uh, flu symptoms, and, and most of the impacts would be felt primarily at the supply chain levels. People stayed home sick, et cetera, et cetera. By early March, however, the World Health Organization was talking of a global health emergency, and that evolved quickly to become a global pandemic declared by the WHO on March 11th. As if that weren't enough, at about the same time, OPEC plus members Saudi Arabia and Russia opened a crude oil price war. The twin hammer blows of the pandemic and that price war staggered the global oil and gas industry. Commodity prices collapsed and demand destruction in the crude oil and refined product sectors was widespread. To a lesser extent, the natural gas industry was also impacted, evidenced in part by the dramatic reduction in global LNG trade over the last couple of months. The measures taken to flatten the curve of the COVID-19 pandemic forced us here at Natural Gas World to cancel our original gas dialogues event on April 1st. Uh, no April Fool's joke here. And consider other ways to deliver this critical content. At the same time, we get, began to pivot to explore what the Canadian gas industry and indeed oil and gas markets around the world might look like as we emerged from economic lockdowns. And that is the focus of our opening keynote session today. Joining me are Timothy Egan, president of the Canadian Gas Association, and Matt Van Wieligen, who I'm sure, sure most of you know well, uh, founder and partner of ARC Financial and chair of Viewpoint Investment Partners here in Calgary. <coughs> For much of the last year or so, MAC has been exploring the evolution of Canada's energy sector, identifying several emerging themes that are likely to shape the future of oil and gas in Canada. For the next 45 minutes or so, he and Tim will discuss some of those emerging themes and other forces pushing on the Canadian energy sector. It promises to be a lively discussion, and we encourage you to pose questions to Tim and Mac through GoToWebinar's Q&A function. I'll be back later for that, but for now, I'll turn the screen over to Timothy and Mac. Gentlemen. Thank you, Dale. Uh, so, uh, Tim, I'm, I'm off first here, am I? No, I can't hear Tim. Yeah, you can now. I just muted myself, Mac. Oh, okay. But you won't get so, background noise of my family here. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Dale, for the introduction. And, and uh, Tim, it's a real pleasure uh, to be sharing the podium, so to speak, with you. Uh, I, as Dale says, I, I've been uh, very engaged over the last few years in, in conversations about the vision of energy and, and energy policy uh, in Canada. 
And I confess that I used to go into a lot of these discussions with a, uh, a comprehensive uh, um, uh, description of, of what I thought would be the ideal uh, go-forward uh, basis of energy policy uh, in Canada. And I was talking to so many different people who had such different perspectives and different interests. There were consumer groups and businesses, different products were involved, different parts of the country, uh, government, government policymakers, political people, investors, and <clears throat> the stakes feel so high for so many people. There was lots of different ways of looking at, at the, the issues, and as we're all well aware, lots of, of uh, polarization. Uh, disagreement and and, uh, and and conflict. And so what I did to deal with that was to uh, disaggregate, in a sense, the the perspectives and the, the the what I call themes of vision. And I'm going to go through a really quick summary here of, of those themes. And I'm just taking a look to see what time it is, because I'm going to go very fast through it. And then uh, Tim and I can uh, can speak to some of these themes in more depth and we can respond to your questions and I should say as well there's a document that will be dis distributed to you I hope but towards the end of this week and uh, and all of all of what I'm going to say today is is uh, in in that document and the, the first point the first theme is on the theme of uh, ESG and it's uh, uh, my my and it's one of the most important points I can make and that is that I, I firmly believe that we need to embrace an expanded concept of ESG environment social uh, governance where economics is always included and I, I refer to this as EESG some people will say double ESG but the point is that we don't talk about economics without talking about ESG, and we don't talk about ESG without talking about economics. And economics in the broadest sense, uh, it, 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 including investment-related uh, uh, economics. And it's, it's a very powerful framework to understand our interests and to understand all of society's essential interests and aspirations. When you look at, at economics, of course, what comes to mind is economic prosperity. When you're looking at the environment, what comes to mind is what I sometimes think of as our, our natural, our nature-based uh, uh, prosperity. And the, the S in ESG, the, the social side is health, and education, and, and safety, and at the deepest and broadest level, the quality of human experience in our, in our society. And the G is something that I feel that we're not focusing on enough. A lot of people think of governance as just relating to corporate governance. But of course, governance relates very much uh, to uh, the way we govern ourselves through our, our, our government. And integrity, ethics, and effectiveness are critical for supporting prosperity uh, across our, our society. So ESG, ESG is not going away. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so I think we need to go into it and uh, address our issues and speak to the world from the context of this framework, but broadened uh, to, to include uh, uh, economics. That's theme one. Theme two 
is is that we need to embrace a customer first adaptive mindset towards the emissions challenge and i feel that we are and uh, our customers want low carbon products and we need to wholeheartedly embrace what our customers and our stakeholders and the, the public want and just on this point on emissions uh, there's no question, and I know that many of you would be aware of this, but Canada's been making significant progress with respect to reducing emissions in, in many different ways. And specifically, the oil sands emissions are going down and trending towards the average of crude oil uh, refined in the U.S. And certain new oil sands projects like Suncor's Fort Hills and Sonova's Christina Lake are below the U.S. average. And our leading companies are committed to ambitious reductions. Our electricity sector is the greenest in the world. Among the greenest in the world, 82% of our power is coming from non-greenhouse gas emitting sources. And that's approximately twice the 40% average for OECD countries. We're a global leader in methane regulations. Our natural gas, I believe, is probably the greenest in the world. We're a global leader in carbon capture and storage. And so those, those are a few points there. In the document, you'll see that I identify a few serious policy questions. And one specific policy question that I'm always asking, and I never really get good responses from government and policymakers, and that is if we can demonstrate that our energy products will do no harm on the basis of emissions compared to comparable products in the markets that we're serving, how would we justify ceding market share to other suppliers who have less stringent emission and environmental uh, standards? It's a very important strategic question. And what it points to is, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, a guideline, a strategic uh, guideline. And that is our energy products will do no harm in the markets they serve. A third theme uh, is simply, that, and I'm just going to, I'm going to touch on this very quickly. There's more, and again, all of you would know this, there's more to Canada's ESG story than emissions. It's, it's the combination of many uh, ESG factors that creates an advantage position for Canada's oil and natural gas sector. It's our pipeline systems. It's our marine transportation systems. Uh, it's the fact that our oil and gas sector is the largest clean tech investor uh, in Canada. We have the largest, we're the largest employer of indigenous people. Uh, corporate governance is, I believe, is uh, among, if not the best in the world. So we have issues and we have problems, of course, but our ESG is uh, among the best in the world and we're committed for it to get better. The next theme is, is critical i believe and is not is not discussed enough from a strategic point of view and that is the energy transition that so many people are focused on the decarbonization the commitment to deeply decarbonize our economy is best described as an energy evolution it is multi-decadal arguably even multi-generational and the debate about peak oil demand is uh is gets much more attention i feel uh, uh, than perhaps it deserves. I mean, the fact is that oil demand uh, in, all, in developed countries and advanced countries and certainly in Europe over the last 10 years or so has been plateauing and declining in many uh, countries. And 
the growth, of course, was in the non-developing uh, part of the world. Plateauing demand, which is really what I see over the next 10 years or so, uh, is, uh, is not, a, uh, it's not a, a marker for the death of the Canadian uh, oil and gas industry. But it is a marker, or it's a proclamation, that we need to become more strategic to find our role and path in this market. And the one way I describe the possibility of this path is, is using uh, the expression of uh, the concept of best barrel, best barrel as an aspirational path. And, and some of you would have heard this before, I know, but in a long-term transition to decarbonization, the last barrel to be phased out should be the best barrel, and the best barrel should be Canada's barrel. I believe, now I say barrel, should be saying energy products. It's simpler just to say barrel. And, uh, but I believe that represents a, an inspiring uh, challenge uh, to, the, to Canadian, the Canadian oil and gas industry. And it's a theme that we can all rally around. And it's figurative. It is not literal because I have had some people say, well, uh, you know, firstly, there will be no last barrel. And I agree with that. And then they're saying, well, we can't be the best barrel because of this or that. And I, I think the, the, the point is that it changes the dialogue. And then we, we need to ask ourselves, well, what, does, what do the best energy products look like? And how can we serve uh, markets uh, from, from that uh, perspective? The next theme is, and again, I, I fully expect that all of you have heard these themes in different ways. And it's the concept of of global leadership in clean, uh, reliable, responsible uh, energy development. And, and that, again, our, our energy products will, will do no harm. And in this connection, when you look at Canada's industry globally, we just recently updated a lot of these uh, indexes, which compare Canada to uh, our competitors. So this will be the top oil producers, top 10 oil producers in the world. And we're, we're number one pretty much, well, we are not pretty much, we are number one on all these criteria. We're first in the Sustainable Development Index, first in the Environmental Performance Index, first in Global Peace Index, first in World Happiness Index, first in Social Progress, first in Human Freedom Index, first in Human Development Index, first in Democracy Index, first in Corruption Perception Index, first in rule of law, first in world press freedom, first in resource uh, governance. And the point I'm making is that Canada's energy sector and Canada uh, in contemplating uh, its strategy with respect to its energy sector has an extraordinary brand platform in the world. And it's something that we can really, we really need to, to step onto and to take advantage of. The next theme relates to the, what I just said, but it is, it's a little different. And I will say that when I first start, started talking this way, uh, the, the eyes would roll and uh, some people would get kind of uncomfortable because it reminds them of the language that somebody else uh, uses, a very high profile political person in the United States. And, but the, the, the language here and the description is global first, Canada first. And our first priority 
it, so it's not just Canada first. Our first priority should be to reduce global emissions and serve Canada's own national interests. So from the perspective of climate risk and the concern, the intense concern, if not preoccupation uh, around that, that can be a vision that we can articulate is that we can do both. Uh, and in fact, we will do better in reducing global emissions if we're also serving our own interests and we're collaborating uh, among, uh, among ourselves. A key point in this in this perspective, Global First Canada First, is to appreciate, and and also people get uncomfortable with this as well. Uh, it, it's just a it's just a in my mind it's a factual reality, and that there are very few countries in the, around the world who signed the the uh, the Paris Accord, uh, who have uh, credible uh, plans and policies in place to comply with their targets. And so it creates incredible risk for Canada when you think about global emissions and you think about the possibility that we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars transforming our economy and, and our uh, share of, of global emissions, which I'll speak to again in just a moment, is, is, is uh, immaterial. And so at the end of the day, when we go out 10 years, it, we're going to find that there were other major producers and countries that did not comply and Canada did what they think is the right thing, but we didn't make a difference. And that's the point. If we're focused on just the Paris Accord targets, we may not make a difference in terms of reducing uh, uh, global emissions. The, uh, the, the eighth point is, is the new economic realities that we're in. Now, and, and Dale referenced this in the context of, well, post-COVID, you know, what do we really look like and what, is, what does the energy sector look like? But you know, we need to ask ourselves also, what does what our, what is the, what does the country look like economically and, and fiscally? And, and you know, we're, people are all asking that question. And, and, we're, and there's, there are many perspectives, well, things aren't going to be uh, the same. Uh, things will be the same. Everybody's debating it. But there's one thing with certainty we can say that we'll, not be the same and that is the the amount of debt that we've taken on the 380 billion dollar deficit that we're running this year will be on our books it will be uh, a liability for all canadians uh, long term and it's important to appreciate is that there's no offsetting productive asset you know we saved we basically filled the hole of lost income and it's not like in an organization, in a business or a household, you make an investment, there's an offsetting asset, maybe the investment isn't in good shape, maybe there's some possible losses. Well, the virtual entirety of this, is there's, there's really no offsetting productive asset to enhance the productivity uh, of Canada going forward. And it's a, it's a critical perspective. The other point is just the size of the debt. When you aggregate debt in Canada from uh, household debt, which is among the highest in the world, uh, consumer debt, uh, and corporate debt, which is among the highest in the world, uh, and provincial debt and federal debt. When you aggregate it all, that you you get to a, a number of about seven trillion dollars against the two trillion dollar economy, three hundred and fifty percent. And the federal government uh, and, and key ministers, and I just heard it just two days ago again. Uh, they they like to say that we ended up going into this. We had a very strong 
we're in a very strong uh, fiscal position and our, our balance sheet was very strong and they always quote this number 35% of GDP and I find it very um, uh, dis disheartening uh, and it just doesn't represent the indebtedness of, of uh, Canada uh, not only because of course the national government has taken on a lot more debt uh, but but so have the provinces and and all decision-making entities across uh, our our society have and, if, and we have to bear in mind that all this debt is against only one economy so the point is with respect to this uh, this piece this theme is that uh, we have both stagnant productivity and excessive indebtedness logically that should force a reset in our priorities towards productivity uh, and growth and we can talk about that if, if you wish the next point the next theme that people will talk about and uh and i'm starting to talk about more and more is that our strategy our energy strategy and policy is failing our national interests and i mentioned some of these themes are in a sense complementary or they they overlap but i live in the world of strategy and i have for decades albeit corporate strategy uh, but uh, we study strategy we're always asking the question what does good strategy look like what does great strategy look like and when you look at what we're doing in canada one of the criteria of great strategy is materiality is focusing on what is most important. If you look at at annual global emissions in the world on on like on a clock, it would take 36 hours to account for the emissions of Canada's total upstream sector, and six days to account for all of Canada's emissions as a country, leaving 359 days to to other emitters. You can look at the data, you can slice and dice it in all sorts of ways, but our emissions, and again, this is something that a lot of people are uncomfortable about. And I've actually had people tell me, stop talking about this. Uh, and uh, it's because they think I'm implying that we shouldn't do anything, that we should just go into kind of a non-active, passive perspective with respect to emissions. And that's, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, let's, as we make trade-offs, and we contemplate our own interests in this, let's just be very aware our emissions are immaterial to the problem we're trying to solve, and that is uh, global emissions. And if we're not careful, we will tank our, our own essential interests to achieve something, again, that's not going to make a difference to the, uh, the, the global problem. And my last, my last theme is, is uh, what, I, what I think of as more a unifying uh, vision and it really is a, a summary of everything that I've just presented here into a, a, a set of principles uh, and when you see the final document that'll probably be at the front uh, of the document and it's a set of principles and understandings that form the basis of intelligence strategy and policy uh, for Canada and <clears throat> I debated whether I want to say this uh, particularly to end on this that when you look at this, this summary of, of principles and, and, and see the, I believe, the evidence and see the logic of it all, one of the key pieces is, is a, a, a vision and a set of strategies that are unifying and collaborating nationally. 
regionally, provincial, within our own country, to make this happen, to optimize our advantages, to work together to optimize our advantages, to, to seek out synergies uh, in, our, in our strategies. And synergies requires working together. It, it requires collaboration. Energy sector cuts across everything that we do. And a government plays a hugely important role. And in, in Canada, within Canada, we have failed to really work together in energy development and, and energy policy. And we're not serving, we have not been serving Canada's interests and global interests. Now, the part I didn't want to say, but I'm going to, <clears throat> Uh, because we can have some conversation about it, is answer to the question, well, am I optimistic that Canada could do this? And so, in a sense, what I'm offering is this set of principles, this ultimately you'll see, yeah, I presented in disaggregation, in a disaggregated form, but it's really the basis of a larger, a larger vision uh, for, for Canada's uh, uh, energy industry. But am I optimistic that we can pull that off? And I have to say I'm not. And uh, I just have to be real with everybody. And it's because uh, there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether we can. And it's because of intensely politicized, regionalized polarization in our country. Uh, and it's a sad reality. Uh, there are, I do have signs that it's changing. Uh, and there's more realism and pragmatism coming in. Uh, but it's uh, that that's the piece that worries me the most so tim over to you well thanks mac and um thanks dale and uh and your colleagues in natural gas world for the chance to join you this morning um i really appreciate the opportunity i'm a bit intimidated being on a panel with mac um given his experience versus mine um and Mac, I really appreciated that that overview of your themes. I think that's a very useful way of of looking at the at the overall picture we're facing in the energy sector. I'm just going to take a couple minutes and and drill down a little bit on on some of the stuff you talked about from a from a downstream natural gas industry perspective, because um, I think it's I think it's relevant to to all of those themes and. And dare I say it, it might actually offer uh, a somewhat more optimistic look because um, uh, it comes down to the individual Canadian uh, and and where they have grounds for optimism and 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 how they have consistently managed to pull us through things and and they will do so again. So uh, let me just give you a snapshot on on the on the gas industry um, and and where we are in COVID. So. The downstream industry was ready for COVID in many respects, and it's because it's an industry focused on ensuring continuous delivery of reliable energy services under any circumstances. We have pandemic protocols in place and all the related procedures to enable us to transition quickly to a lockdown state. Now, before COVID, the dominant issue, you know, it's only six months ago, it seems like years ago, but the dominant issue was actually protests at resource project sites including pipeline sites. <clears throat> and this had our industry wondering about the safety of its workers, not because of the inherent dangers in handling gaseous fuels, but because of the possible threat of confrontation at work sites with those opposed to the work we do. 
Now, in spite of that, when COVID hit, our frontline crews were there right across the country, determined to make sure that energy was being delivered. And I think this speaks to the real culture of our industry, one of constant attention to the customer and the customer's needs. Now, there are almost 15,000 workers in the downstream gas industry, and they're very, very proud um, to responsibly deliver energy every single day to the over 7 million customers we have across the country. So those are residential, commercial, industrial customers. And we deliver Canada's most affordable and most reliable energy. When storms hit, gas systems rarely go down. When you hear about rough weather, you hear a lot about power outages, but you very rarely hear about gas outages. And we're trying to make it all the more rare with a constant emphasis on service improvement. So for those reasons, it's no wonder that we're actually the fastest growing energy delivery system in Canada. Our customer base is growing at over twice the rate of population growth, and our percentage of energy end use, which is now roughly 35%, is expected, and this is uh, Canadian energy regulator uh, statistics I'm, I'm, I'm relying on here, it's expected to grow to around 40% within the next 20 years. That'll um, make it the largest single end use of energy, but more of uh, more interest, I think, it'll be roughly twice the end use that electricity has. So, so despite claims by politicians that we're electrifying energy use, customers, the constituents of those same politicians <clears throat> are saying otherwise by their choices. So we have backbench government MPs, so these are members of Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party, calling us to talk about how the gas system can be extended to more of their constituents. All while ministers of the crown of the same government talk about getting off of hydrocarbons. And I think this speaks to a fundamental disconnect that's widespread amongst elites in our country, be they political or corporate or media or academic. Because <clears throat> at the end of the day, hardworking Canadians care enormously about their ability to afford their day to day lives. And fundamental to affording the day to day expenses of life is affordable energy. It underwrites everything else that we do. Of course, Canadians do care about other things. <coughs> but when they come at the expense of a family's ability to pay its bills, those things are secondary. Too many people in positions of authority <coughs> go on about a range of policies and programs that will be put in place to design a Canada that they consider ideal. But the best candidate is one formed by the day-to-day -day actions of millions of Canadians living their lives. <clears throat> and affordable natural gas helps them do that. As we all attempt to move beyond the lockdowns, there's much talk about a green recovery <clears throat> or a fundamental reset or a step change in how we do what we do. <clears throat> you can tell I'm fighting a cold, which is why I'm not actually in Calgary. They wouldn't let me on the plane. I don't have COVID, but <laughs> I'm fighting a cold. Anyway, sure enough, in the gas industry, we're always looking at ways to improve how we do what we do. So we're looking at new fuels like hydrogen and RNG or new innovative technologies that drive efficiency and reduce our environmental footprint or process and equipment changes that improve reliability and our safety performance, <clears throat> but always with a focus on the customer first. Now, we don't know what to expect in the next six to 12 months. But we think a lot of Canadians are going to be really hurting financially. And it picks up on Max's last point. And what's key to a quick recovery is ensuring the fundamentals like affordable energy 
and the fundamental success stories like piped energy delivery can continue. So that's what I'm gonna offer by way of introduction, Mac. <clears throat> and I'm gonna turn over to Dale now for some initial questions, but Mac, I've got several for you and I'm hoping we'll get a bunch from the audience. Okay. Dale? Okay. Thanks, Mac. Uh, thanks, Tim. Uh, we've had a few questions come in. I'm hoping there will be more. So uh, everybody watching, please uh, get your thinking caps on and, and get those questions point, uh, posted. Uh, Mac, many of the points you made about Canada's leadership position in, in a lot of those ESG metrics uh, is quite well known within the industry, but pretty much ignored outside the industry. Uh, how can that be changed? Does it does it have to come from the industry, which uh, the NGOs seem to ignore anyway, uh, and a lot of the a lot of the public doesn't believe anything the industry says these days, or does that story need to be told by the government or by somebody else? That's a really it's a really good question. You can hear me, okay, Dell? Yep. It, it's a really it's a really good question. And one of the conclusions I've come to, Dale, is that we need multiple voices uh, and multiple channels uh, communicating these these realities. And it's one of the reasons why I want to do these kinds of sessions with people uh, where I can touch into large groups uh, and then all of us can start to carry the message, these these kind of messages. Uh, and so I, that, that's one part of the answer. But the other part of the answer is ultimately, we need our elected representatives and we need our, our, at the highest level, we need our political leaders to face outward with their backs to the industry and to speak to Canadians and to speak to investors and to speak to the global community about all our advantages and our strengths unqualified and they have not done that at the national level they certainly have not done that and what i just said now i have said at the end of every meeting i think i've had or if you look at the materials that i've published over the last two years and if you look at my submissions uh, in the the senate hearings uh, and to the house of commons the same point over and over and in the prime minister's office when i've been there a few times i make the same that same point is that and i i'm very sensitive to it because about 75 or 80 percent of arc financials investors are are international and so we know how they think about canada and so they see the divisiveness and the fighting and the last elections in september of last year uh was uh was was had it was extremely negative in terms of the image of canada the way we're all uh, attacking each other and i know i'm going on here very long dale but it's that regionalization piece and we've had many investors say to us like why should we invest in canadian uh, uh companies when you have that kind of political risk where there's adverse and hostile policy always around the corner and it's it's focused on the west uh and of course there's no electoral support uh for the for our existing government in the west and that's having a huge influence now that's a perception that's just not my view although it is my view but no that's a perception that exists certainly in the uh 
among sophisticated global investors. And I don't think we can dissipate it until uh, the national or national leaders speak to the risk directly. It almost sounds like it it could ultimately require, and I hate to say it, a, a constitutional change uh, or a, a change in, in how our, especially the, the federal government politicians are elected. I mean, as you as you said in the document, you know, uh, all of Canada's energy production comes virtually from the provinces west of, of Winnipeg, and there's virtually no federal representation of any of those. No. Uh, um, which, right. you know, leads to all of the, the Wexit talk and, and everything yeah. else. Um, how, how do you fight that? I, I can't see... I can't see a pathway apart from a, a change in, in the electoral process. And we all know how the current prime minister has responded to, to that sort of talk. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, that is the, that is the, the really big question for Canada's energy sector is, is how do you fight that? And I'll tell you for myself personally, as a Canadian, uh, I have, uh, I have found it to be very disillusioning uh, and, and very worrisome. You know, because we're not the model we want to be in the world. And and it's because of this issue. And it's because uh, of the extreme temptation of advant advantage-seeking within polarization. I mean, the reason why polarization persists is that some people, some groups benefit from polarization. And they're, so, they're, 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 they are prepared to amplify it. And to, so, and to seek advantage. So let me weigh in here if I can, Mac. Um, <clears throat> Dale, um, uh, I'm, I, I, I don't believe it requires a constitutional amendment. I, I don't require, I, I don't believe it's necessarily as, as regional as it can seem. Um, in my remarks, I was trying to capture the point that um, at the end of the day, <clears throat> the customer is key in all of this. Now, in the natural gas industry, uh, well over half our customers are in eastern markets. Okay, these are not not producing markets; these are consuming markets, and these are consumers who benefit from extraordinary affordability and reliability. Now, these are not messages that we have conveyed very effectively to our customers, nor have we conveyed how those things and uh, uh, affordability and reliability have been determined on the back of the kind of performance that Mac is talking about on the upstream. And, and increasingly, I think what, what we feel compelled to do as an industry is show that much more clearly how extraordinary our environmental performances, our social performances, our governance is. And with all due respect, I'm not convinced the, the, the average customer pays any attention to that. What the average customer pays attention to is does the light switch work? Does the thermostat work? Does the ignition work on my car? And can I afford the fuels that are making those things work? And we as an industry have to get better at making the point that the reason those things work reliably and the reason they're affordable is because of what we do. And instead, because we're so caught up in a conversation about our performance on, on these sort of higher level issues, we tend to look apologetic we look defensive and we get into intellectual and esoteric conversations <clears throat> that frankly the average customer doesn't care about. 
And I think, you know, if we actually were in a way, I dare I say it, even a little more polarized in how we defend our interests, I think we might see some broader public support for what we do as an industry. I, I, Tim, I think that's a, a great perspective. And uh, in a sense, you're saying, let's focus on our, our, our performance to our customers uh, fundamentally in terms of the way we present ourselves. And I think the, uh, and, and you're, you're close to it, like you're close to the downstream and you're close to your customers. And, and a lot of people on, on this call would be as well. And I'm in Western Canada. I'm in the producing area. We're producing commodities into, in a sense, an anonymous market. Uh, you know, we, we don't know our end use customers. And I think that's one of our greatest weaknesses. And that's one of the reasons we got ourselves into so much trouble is, is that we, we don't really, we're not really connecting uh, with our, our, our customers. And so we were not customer focused. It was just a selling at the lowest cost, at the best price into these anonymous markets. So I, I really appreciate the point you're making. And you got to make a few more points to make me feel a little more optimistic, but that's a good one. <laughs> I'll let Dale ask another question. First. Okay, we've got a, a question that deals with, we have, we have a question that I should just turn you two guys loose and I'll go have a coffee. Um, it deals more with, with some global issues. Over the last few months, uh, a lot of the European majors, uh, BP uh, one, which is notable, has announced that it it sees the end of oil in in as little as ten years. Um, and BP, along with a lot of the other majors, Shell, Equinor, I think, has done this, uh, have communicated a shift in their strategy towards energy services and and uh, which bring a lot more focus on renewables and the greening of their business. This is obviously a response to some uh, public sentiment in, in the European Union uh, and the large investor houses in Europe uh, that are curtailing investments in, in fossil fuels generally uh, around the world is how and, or I guess if, is this or how is this impact being felt in Canada? Well, it, again, a great question, and uh, it is being felt. And I think the way it's being felt is to uh, shake our confidence in the future of our industry when you have major players like that saying, hey, listen, the writing's on the wall. You know, the oil and gas industry is going into some form of long-term uh, uh, decline and we're shifting now. And, uh, uh, and it, so it, it shakes everybody's everybody's um, confidence about the future of the of the industry but there's a few critical points to to make and I've made some of them um, already and that is that for me the question is is what is Canada's strategy into the market that we're serving and that where we're competing it, to look at these aggregate trends and say well we think that demand is 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 peaking uh, it's it, you know we've come off 100 million a day. Canada's production order of magnitude is 5 million. We need to take the view that whatever market is there, we're going to be present selling our products. We're going to reduce our costs. We're going to reduce our carbon. We're going to continue to advance on all key considerations that are 
our consumers are interested in, our customers are interested in, and we're going to have, there's going to be a long-term role uh, for Canada's oil and gas industry. And I, so I, I don't take it as a, uh, kind of as a, as a shock uh, and, oh, it's the ultimate now that, you know, we all need to just wave the, the white flag. If anything, we need to work harder uh, to, and to, to, to compete harder uh you know as as we move forward as a as an industry yeah, the other DL, point i'd make yep sorry go ahead no go ahead mac well i was just going to say that the other point that you're going to hear more people talk about uh is is the the shift uh of of supply uh, i'm thinking oil now uh to less stable uh, uh on quite frankly, less ethical, uh, less socially responsible countries in the world. That that you know, when BP and other majors are in a sense just going into produce out, um, they uh, who's going to take up that production? And it, and then and it looks like capital has declined so hard. It's very possible that production declines are going to be greater than uh, demand side declines. And that sets you up for a lot of, of uh, volatility as you go forward. But the, the democratic countries in the free market in North America, I mean, if we're all not careful, we're, we're going to lose reliability of supply as we move forward. Well, if I could I just I, I reinforce that, that last point about losing reliable supply. I mean, <clears throat> you know, there have been several instances over the last year of markets where there have been profound um, disruptions of energy delivery uh, because policymakers have decided to go down a particular road, like, you know, the most recent being California uh, and blackouts across California, where, it, you know, the rhetoric of green power has, has taken such hold that there are all kinds of policies in place that are undermining the very stability of, you know, what should be one of the most sophisticated societies uh, in the Western world. Now, when you talk about, you know, the BP announcements, I think I saw a clip, was it this morning or yesterday from Shell, that they're also, they're undergoing a significant cut in expenses and, and it's presented as a, as a means to help them uh, reposition towards renewables and, and, uh, and, and energy services. At the end of the day, super majors are going to make announcements that, that hopefully trigger a positive response from investment markets. And investment markets are very seized with green rhetoric right now. They are. It's it's you know it's the yeah. uh, it's the flavor of the day. But to Max's point, 100 million barrels a day, right? That's an enormous quantity of fossil fuels. And say we have reached a peak and it and it and it starts to decline. I'm I'm not convinced of that, by the way, given the fact that there are an estimated two billion people in the world who live in energy poverty and want access to energy services, the kind that we've benefited from for a long time. But even if there is a, a, a modest decline, why shouldn't Canada try to get a solid share of that, given how we do what we do, how effective we are, how transparent and efficient and responsible we are um, as uh, in, in the sector? So, you know, a few months ago, Elizabeth May and, uh, and the block leader talked about the death of, of the oil and gas industry. And I wrote a letter saying we're not dead yet. In fact, we're here to rebuild Canada post-COVID. This is the approach I think we should take as an industry. We're, we spend more, as Mac noted, on clean tech 
than any other sector, <clears throat> we are better positioned than anybody to deliver more to the world, not less. Exactly. Yes. Uh, here's a here's a couple of uh, related questions, I guess. Um, Tim, you spoke of of policies and and how uh, those drive investments. What specific policies can Canadian governments pr promote to to create you know win-win scenarios that balance ec environmental and, and economic concerns uh, and still help Canada meet its its uh, international commitments while promoting growth at the same time and and a corollary to that is uh, how does natural gas fit into that that green shift I mean is is hydrogen truly an option in in Canada uh, is it gray hydrogen is it blue hydrogen is it green hydrogen um, how how should industry and governments be leveraging our existing infrastructure to, to promote that shift if if indeed that's the direction we want to take well look this is this is i think the only um uh self-induced economic decline in human history right and and, and mm -hmm. we had to do it it, it was it was a shutdown because of COVID. but it's actually a recession we've created right um and so what that says is that the fundamentals of our economy should still be very solid if we can sort of turn the switches again. <laughs> so what do you do to trigger those fundamentals to, to, to act, to move um, fast? And I think one of the things you do is you look for where your strategic strengths are. Um, uh, and, and what are your strategic strengths in Canada? Well, one is a phenomenal energy delivery system. And I talk about natural gas, but I'd say the electric system as well. I'd say the liquid fuel system. What are we doing to make sure that delivery system can get energy to customers faster, more affordably, more reliably in short order so that manufacturing can ramp up again, so that businesses can ramp up again? That means government should be looking at, <clears throat> okay, are the regulatory provisions we have that we could pull back right now in order to trigger more economic growth? Are there initiatives that we could take that would send signals that would uh, trigger faster economic responses? Are there provisions we can make in the tax code that would trigger a quick response on things like that? I think there are a series of those. We put a letter into the federal government about this. I think government has to avoid the urge, and I know it's a strong one in many governments, to say, all right, this is a chance to pick a favorite and say, all right, that's what we're gonna go with, okay? That this is the technology or this is the fuel we're gonna go with. I don't think they should do that. I think they should, in fact, try to pull back the levers of government and allow the market to rush in and do the kind of productive things it can do. Last point, Dale, you, you mentioned hydrogen. Well, we're very active in the hydrogen file. Many of my utilities are, are <clears throat> pursuing hydrogen projects. It goes hand in glove with the natural gas industry in all sorts of ways because natural gas is a fundamental input for, for hydrogen. So we see an enormous opportunity long term with it um, we're doing pilot projects across the country we're looking forward to what the federal government comes forward with on its hydrogen strategy but always as with any option out there we're going to say what is this going to do to the customer's ability to continue to get affordable reliable energy can hydrogen be part of the mix yes i think it can but you know hydrogen's got a lot of long way to go before it can meet the standard that natural gas meets right now in Canada. Mm -hmm. Mac, anything you know, to I, add to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a general point, I um, 
uh, as when governments, provincial and federal government, um, look to pursue new policies to move us along and to restart our economy, uh, what I'm saying to them is, and it, it gets right to the question, is whatever you do, and however you direct our resources, make sure that you're at the same time you're satisfying a, a productivity criteria. And I mean, productivity is is conceptually is just uh, uh, output relative to what you're putting in. And uh, and you can think of it as efficiency and productivity. And so, uh, and if you look at uh, productivity, the GDP per dollar or per hour worked in our economy, it's been stagnant. Uh, and it's the key driver of the standard standard of living uh, in any in any country all over the world. And so, if you continue to direct resources into assets that are not going to, in a sense, create value. Uh, for all all Canadians, economic value for all Canadians, our productivity is going to continue to stagnate, and we can feel good because we've done some great things uh, socially and redistribution and so forth. Uh, but we're the average person and the average family will will not be getting ahead, and so that I have not um, mastered the language of being able to communicate. Uh, with the with the public on these kinds of matters, I just know from my background what it is that has to be done, and that has to be a significant uh, consideration. And however we're allocating uh, resources moving forward, particularly given also how how indebted we are. And so, I I really like what Tim said that you know and that was my first instinct as well to say this that basically the same thing is just move back, move away, withdraw uh, regulations that are difficult for us, uh, and and message that you're doing it. Don't be afraid to say, you know, you're become, we're, we're pro-business, we're pro-investment. You know, I've, I've dealt quite a bit with governments. I'm gonna tell this little story because it's kind of just interesting and fun. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I'll just say it was with the Alberta government and the prior government, uh, prior to the Kenny government. And I was the chair of AIMCO and they kept asking me, how can we create jobs? We were a job and and uh, they would they were standing up and they were saying over and over and over, we are all about jobs, jobs, jobs. So they would sit with me and they'd say, how can we create jobs, jobs, jobs? And I said to them, well, when I hear you say jobs, 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 what I'm hearing is investment, investment, investment. There has to be a high level of, of investment in the economy uh, to be able to create a high level of, uh, of uh, jobs. And when I hear and when I think of investment, 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 what I'm hearing is profit, profit, profit. <laughs> in other words, you've got to figure out ways where private capital and your and public capital can generate higher levels of surpluses, revenues less costs, so that that can be reinvested if there's the confidence to reinvest to pursue opportunities. And so, I think you should go out into the world and say profit, profit, profit. Now that was an NDP government. I didn't get very far on that, but I made the point 
that we have to understand the way capital uh, is is uh, created and formed uh, uh, to be able to really understand at a deeper level how it is we can run our economy well. All right, thanks, Mac. Um, we're out of time. We've got about 45 yep. seconds left. Um, I'd like to thank Tim and Mac for taking time out of their schedule and and fighting through cold symptoms this morning to join us. Um, a lot of this discussion is is actually going to continue into our next session, which comes up in about 15 minutes, uh, that will look specifically at the ESG uh, issue and uh, possibly even meld uh, the economic aspect of that into it. Uh, I know that uh, at least one of the panelists has, has some thoughts on that. So again, thanks very much. Uh, we appreciate your time. And for all of you out there, thanks for joining us. And we hope to see you at our next session starting in about 15 minutes. Thanks, Dale. Thanks, Mike. Great. 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 Yeah. Thanks, guys. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.